Welcome back. It's Valentine's Day. It's Ash Wednesday. It's a good day for good news. Um, I mean, maybe people are celebrating. There's lots of Valentine's Day celebrating tonight. I don't know. Either that or I absolutely ran everybody off last week, which is at this point a distinct possibility. Um, so we'll just see how it goes. Okay, is that incredibly loud? I tested from back there and it feels loud. We're good? Okay, awesome. Um, okay, so last week we saw God's righteousness revealed in all of creation such that man was left without excuse. And we saw man's unrighteousness revealed such that he was declared guilty. And in a state of spiritual um, desperation, as could be compared, right, to being at the bottom of the ocean, dead, with the Walmart on top of you. That is a state that Paul left us in last week. And the good news is coming, but Paul's not quite there yet. So we're going to stick with him for just a little bit longer, and he's going to tell us just one more way about how sin affects every area of our life. It's like he really wants us to understand this whole, the whole total depravity uh, thing that we've got going on. And so he's like, just in case I haven't been clear enough, I'm going to say it one more way. Um, for the sake of time tonight, we are going to start in verse 9. So if you will read with me, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so he describes what spiritually dead people are like. We are walking around, we are walking and talking, and we are spiritually dead. And this is what it looks like. No one's looking for God. Often there are people sitting in churches who are not looking for God. It's an easy place to hide from him. If you show up at church, no one does good. And that feels like, oh, that's kind of mean. We're doing some, we're doing some, everybody's doing some good stuff. And he says, well, no, the spiritually dead people are, they might be doing good, but it is for their own benefit. It is fully self-centered. And there's no fear of God before their eyes. And they have no awe of the majesty and the glory of God because dead people don't have the ability. Something has to work on spiritually dead people from the outside. We absolutely cannot rescue ourselves from dead at the bottom of the ocean underneath Walmart. We have to be rescued and we have to be brought back to life. So when Paul talks in this whole section about none is righteous, no, not one, you hear him going back to those words that he was using last week about God is righteous and man is unrighteous. And so 
where we're going to springboard from tonight is that Paul is talking about our legal spiritual standing. Okay? And so with our legal standing, you can imagine a courtroom, right? So this is all, you know, space and time is all wacky because God is God over all of it. So his, we, we are on this continuum that's like today and tomorrow and the next day and yesterday. And God is God over all of it. Um, so we have to use our imaginations a little bit. Um, but this courtroom that we're going to be talking about, it is a function of when Jesus returns in the future. It's something that's already happened, and it's also what is going to happen when Jesus comes back uh, to, to judge. And at that point, it's going to be that you are in eternity separated from him or for eternity together with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And so when that day comes and he judges, there are two verdicts, right? And one is guilty and one is not guilty, right? So guilty would be unrighteous, which we have learned at this point very much is us. We're guilty. Not guilty is righteous is not us, only Jesus. So when we move forward to this, I want you to be thinking of the judge and a legal mark and a legal distinction that has made about you and on you. And so Paul finishes up that section and he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so the right response is silence. The right response is humility. The right response is an acknowledgement of I am only guilty and that's all I have to offer. And I don't have anything else to say. And at that point, that is when you're ready to receive the good news. Because the good news comes to people with empty hands. And there's such good news. And it been, begins with God. God intervenes. God saves. God works. That was timely. The verdict is in. Okay. So let's start um, in verse 21. The righteousness of God through faith. But now... But now is always the best. It's like everything is really bad. You're really guilty. You're really unrighteous. But now God is coming to work. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Thank goodness. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this is amazing news. Paul says this is the good news. There is a way for you to become righteous, 
not guilty, that has nothing to do with you keeping the law. Because we have very, very clearly understood that we, we do not do that, right? The one unkind thought makes us guilty. And so Paul is saying that through faith in Jesus, by being justified, we have hope. And so God told his people in the Old Testament, if you'll remember, to make uh, animal sacrifices. And it was this, the reminder to them, and it was their way to um, be aware of their sin against God and other people. And their acknowledgement that what God had said was that the punishment for sin is death. And so here was the death, and they brought the animal sacrifices. And so what that showed throughout time, and this, as Paul is talking to these Jewish Christians, this would have been very vivid to them. And what he's saying is, and now there's a way to be righteous apart from the law. And it's substitution. Just like those animal sacrifices, though you had to keep doing them, it was, it was on and on, but they appeased God's wrath for sin. But now the good news that I've come to tell you is that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Through his blood... Through his substitution, God's wrath against you can be appeased. And so um, what I would love for us to do, spend most of our time, is we're going to look at this section, right, verse 23 through, what, 25 or 26. And basically, we look at it and we're like, that sums, up, that sums up the gospel in those few verses. And yet, those few verses are pretty rich with a lot going on. It's amazing how much Paul can shove into just a few sentences, right? And so we, you know, we read this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And we're like, yeah, that's the good news. But it's like, okay, but wait, but now what is justified? And if you're like me, you're like, that's a word, and it's about Jesus, and it's good, and it maybe it has something to do with me. And then you get down to propitiation, and it's just like, I mean, I don't, I don't even have a clue, right? And so we look at this as a whole, and we're like, yeah, that's the gospel. But then when we start breaking it apart, we're like, okay, I, this is, my brain does not compute exactly all of the bounty that Paul is trying to give me. Here, So, I highlighted a few words in green, and we're just going to talk through some words so that we can give a little more shape and a little more color and a little more kind of making it stick uh, to what Paul is talking about. Okay, so, justified by grace is a gift. This word, justified. This word, justified, um, one I've heard for years. I don't I have no idea who this said this. The way they remember justified is it is just as if I'd never sinned. Okay? So when Paul is coming and saying that you are going to be justified, what he's saying is that your verdict is guilty, your eternal spiritual verdict is guilty, and you can't change that. Like that, that the ship has sailed, you have no hope, you are guilty. And God... In his love of you, and this is the thing, 
You go back to that imaginary courtroom and you go back to God the Father who has every right. He would be good and right and just if he lowered the gavel and said, you are guilty. He would still be good and he would still be just. But he looks at us and he loves us. And he longs to be with us. And before the the foundation of the world, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knew this was going to happen and knew we were going to fall and decided that we were worth being with in whatever form that took. And this is the form it takes. So God is saying, you are guilty, but I have a way apart from the law for you to be justified. And... What this means in the legal terms is going to be made righteous. Ah. So all of a sudden we're like, ooh, not guilty. So justified, made righteous, and the way I'm going to do this is by substitution. This is where Jesus comes in. I added that word. It's not in the verse, but it helps us understand. So we are justified by the substitution of Jesus. And what that equals for us is not guilty. Okay. It is good news. Y'all are real quiet. Okay. So when Paul says that we are justified, it is God giving the legal, the legal standing of being righteous. It is that uh, the judge has said, I am looking at you, and I am saying you are righteous. So, this helps me a little bit. Um, say there is, you meet a precious friend, and they have moved here from Brazil, and love it in the U.S., and decide to stay, and decide to become a citizen. And they go through whatever the process is, the long process of becoming a U.S. citizen. And they go before that judge on the day, and the judge says... You are a citizen of the United States. I legally am declaring that this is true of you. But what's interesting is that when they, when they walk out of the room, they don't, like, speak English with a southern accent. They don't get zapped into becoming a, a U.S. citizen in all of the ways that that might look if they had grown up in Mississippi their whole lives. They still speak Portuguese. They still have a lot to learn about the customs and the way that things work in the United States. So if we're sitting here and thinking, okay, so you're saying that this legal, like I've been declared justified, and God says I'm righteous and I'm not guilty, but like what do I do with the fact that like I still sin? Yes. Yes, we do. Just like our dear friends who are American citizens still speak Portuguese. You are still you. This is a legal uh, description of you that is for eternity. Now, does it change you? Yes. Because with that comes a new heart, a heart of stone that's turned into a heart of flesh, the Holy Spirit. So much happens. And yet, you're still you. You're still going to battle your sin until the day you die and go to be with Jesus. Okay, so um, then... Um, we look and we see that we are justified 
and we're justified by his grace. What does that mean? Grace is one of those that we like, we say the word grace all the time. We're like, what, is, what does grace mean? What does grace mean? Um, okay, so if mercy means we don't get what we deserve, which is, would very much fit in here, because we're not getting what we deserve. We're getting a righteous um, verdict based on Jesus. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. That's good. Like we're getting bountifully good things that we have not earned. So some define it as unmerited favor. Um, I would say, though, that um, so you think about it as God's smile. God is smiling on you. He loves you and it is not because of anything you've done. You have not merited his favor. But in this courtroom, the favor actually is merited. But it's merited by somebody that's not you. And it's merited by Jesus. And so in this great substitution, one thing that has happened um, that we're going to get to in a minute is that Jesus is on, dies on the cross, takes the wrath for your sin. And also, if we're going to be declared righteous and not guilty, that means a righteous life, right? That means no sin ever. And so what also is going to happen is that in that substitution, we also get the righteous, perfect record of Jesus who loved his Father and others perfectly. So, grace, that unmerited favor, and that smile of God that really, like he's smiling at his son, and he looks at us, and we get that. Um, so we, Clay and I laugh. We, we have this, I don't know if you have this experience in your life, but this is an experience that we have regularly of um, favor bestowed on us that is merited by someone else. Because um, Clay's brother, um, sweet Will Dabbs, Dr. Dabbs, y'all, I cannot tell you how many, it's just we've lived here forever. And um, weekly, we meet people and they say, oh. well, I meet people and say, are you married to Dr. Dabbs? I am not, but he's in the family. Clay meets people. And in the introduction, it's that, well, are you related to Will Dabbs? I am. And their eyes light up, right? They're like, we love Dr. Dabbs. I mean, he saved my grandmother's life. When we take the kids to see him, I mean, he has on the Superman high top converse and he's making them balloon animals. And by the time they leave, they don't remember they were sick, right? And so we're like, uh-huh. So this is what happens to us, is people are like, oh, you're related to Dr. Dabbs. You must be all right, right? They don't know anything about us, okay? And so that idea of the favor that has, has been merited rightly by someone else that gets bestowed on us, a picture of grace as a gift. We are justified by his grace as a gift that Jesus willingly gave. He willingly chose to be a substitute. He didn't have to. He, in love, looked at us. You know, you think about the Garden of Gethsemane and that night before he went to the cross, and he asked his father if there was another way. It was going to be grueling and excruciating and awful for him. And yet he submitted to his father's will. But he made a choice to submit out of love for us. This is a gift that he gave us. Okay, and then the gift is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so the easiest way for me to remember redemption is you can think of it as a rescue, okay? Redemption, rescue mission. 
Um, we need to be rescued from our spiritual state of death and slavery to the sin, right? We as dead people cannot get ourselves up from the bottom of the ocean out from underneath the Walmart. We have to be rescued by someone else outside of us. Um, Ligonier Ministries described redemption this way. One of the major themes of redemption in the Bible is the idea of captivity. The idea is that someone is trapped, enslaved, kidnapped, or held captive, and thus a price must be paid or a sacrifice made in order to rescue him. When it comes to our redemption through Christ, we were in a situation similar to Israel. As Israel in the Old Testament was enslaved in Egypt, we were enslaved to sin and death. And so when we are redeemed, the redemption by Jesus is that he has rescued us. And then the father asked him to give his blood, and he gave it willingly as a propitiation for our sins. So this redemption, the rescue mission, happened in Jesus by his substitution for us, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. Um, propitiation basically means satisfaction. Um, Grace Ann Bird had me cracking up this morning. Scott's students uh, are, were memorizing this passage of scripture and she was laughing about all the different like when he was checking the papers all of the different words that got put in there for propitiation it was like hilarious like all of these different words and uh he asked him later if anybody had actually looked up what that word meant and not a single not a single one nobody knows what propitiation means um but god's wrath on our sin requires blood payment death is required and so if Jesus' blood is the propitiation for our sin, it means it is the satisfaction. And so there is no more required. God's wrath is completely satisfied by the blood and the death of Jesus. And that's why we talk, we talk so much about Jesus dying on the cross. Because that wrath would be ours if he hadn't soaked it up as a propitiation. So we get near the end of the chapter, and Paul talks about that, um, that God has been showing his forbearance and his patience in passing over former sins. We get to that last part, and you think, what is he talking about now? Um, and really, Paul is looking, he's looking back through time, and there's this he's, idea, you know, we've, they've had all of the animal sacrifices, and... Um, and yet Jesus hadn't come yet. And so kind of what, what was happening? And so the forbearance is like it's the patience of God. So he is passing over the sins of the people of the Old Testament. Because how are they saved? Are they saved in a different way than we are? Have you ever thought about that? How are, how are people who lived before Jesus saved? It's by Jesus' blood. All in Je Again, it's the, it's the time. And so this is the idea that God in forbearance, he is, he is waiting and he is giving them those signs of that sacrifice that's saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's for you, and it's coming. And when Jesus came in the fullness of time, that is when um, God's wrath was let out on all of the sin that Christ took on. So all of those who trusted in faith in a redeemer, you know, the Old Testament talks about a redeemer all the time. 
They knew they needed to be saved. They knew they needed a redeemer. And it's pointing forward. So this passing over former sins wasn't like a brushing them under the rug. It wasn't like it didn't matter. It wasn't like a, um, like a presidential pardon. Uh, Clay had, has only had this happen once in his however long he's been at his um, office where somebody got a presidential pardon. It was a guy who was guilty, guilty, clear, like there was no question. He pled guilty, everything is guilty. Uh, and he, through some political connections, got a presidential pardon. And that feel, it's like, I mean, I guess good for him. But it's, all, it's like, it's fine, sweeping it under the rug, it's no longer a big deal. And that is not what's happening here. What's happening here is that God is patient. And in time, Jesus is going to fulfill everything that his wrath requires. So in this, God shows that he's just. He's not brushing sin under the rug, because that would not be just of him. And he is the justifier of all who have faith in Jesus. God is the one who acts. God is the one who makes all of this happen, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, um, and so we have our justification as a gift, an action done for you, given to you. Um, okay, so I want to... You know when you're sometimes in a conversation with a group of people and you're all of a sudden you're like, oh, I think, I think that girl is not talking about the same thing that the rest of us are talking about? Like we all kind of started out in the same place and she has gone over here. That's what I'm about to do. So similar, different conversation, taking a rabbit trail, just because um, I would love to avoid any confusion. I just want to make sure that I'm clear on this. So when we're talking about this guilty and not guilty I can, you, you know, the questions kind of come up and you're like, okay, but wait a minute. Like, let's talk about sin and let's talk about how, but like some, it, some sin is worse than other sin. You know, and we're, because we've been talking about, well, any, any sin makes, sends you guilty, right? Um, however, you're looking at me, just wait, Miss Sue's like, what is what blasphemy is about to happen? Okay, so in in our in our eternal standing, right there, there are only two options: guilty, going to hell, or guilty that has been justified by the substitution of Jesus, therefore not guilty, living in heaven forever with God. Those are the only two options. But we still, even when we're this, we still sin. Like between now and, and going home to be with Jesus forever and not being sinless then, we still make messes here. Remember, we don't get zapped into perfect Christians. And so our sin on earth does have different consequences, right? So if I get really frustrated with my friend Macon, and I mean, I get really mad and I lose my temper and I boil over and I yell at her. I mean, I just unleash my anger on Macon. That is not good. That is not cool. That is not a thing that is what I want to do. And it would damage our relationship and it would take some repair. Um, then it would be pretty crummy. And if I were to get angry at Macon and I were to murder Macon out of my anger, it would have a lot further reaching consequences for both of us, right? Macon would not just have her feelings hurt and feel like she'd been run over by a truck. She'd be dead. 
and I would be headed to prison. Okay, so when we're talking about sin, there also there are earthly consequences for our sin. So is it worse for me to murder somebody than to yell at them? Yeah, the consequences are worse. But when we're talking about our legal standing for all of eternity, they all get lumped into one thing as sin. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, okay, so as we come back to what, what Paul has been teaching us, and I just want to land um, with this section on that what he's given us is a gift. And um, we receive it by faith. And I feel like so often we get really tripped up by faith. And faith is really difficult to kind of wrap our minds around and understand. And I do not have it figured out. But these are some things I'm learning. So in this process of receiving a gift by faith, the main thing is the gift. The main thing is the giver. The the way that the gift comes from the giver to the receiver is faith, is what Paul is telling us here. We're receiving all this justification. All we're doing is receiving it as a gift. So um, many years ago, we lived in Mentone, Alabama for a while, and some of our dearest friends from church, um, he was a glass blower, and they owned a glass studio. And if you've been to my house, you see we have, we have this beautiful glass. Um, we have vases and pitchers. And when they had open houses, I would work in the studio. I would run the cash register, and I worked for glass. It was awesome. So I have all of this beautiful glass. And um, when we moved back to Oxford, um, it was in the fall. And we moved back here at the end of... Um, working there for a set amount of time, and had no idea what we were going to do. Clay was interviewing with several jobs with, in several different places, but Clayton needed to start the first grade, and we had a free place to live here because my parents had a condo. So we were like, Oxford it is. got to go somewhere. And um, it was, it was, quite, it was quite, a, quite a few months there. And come Christmas, I opened my gift. Clay brings out this huge box that he had hidden, and I opened my gift from him, and lo and behold, it is what Cal calls a water bowl. It is a water bowl made by, by our dear friends, of which, had Clay actually paid what it was worth, which he did not, it would have definitely been the most expensive item we owned. And y'all, this thing, if it's, it sits on my coffee table, and it probably weighs 30 pounds, and it's thick, and it's turquoise, and it's called a water bowl because it looks like water moving, and it is absolutely exquisite. And on the flip side of it, Cal had uh, engraved for clay, because the Lord hears, because they had been praying with us, as our whole group of friends had, of what, what in the world is the next step of their life, because we did not know. And we had three kids. It was a whole thing. Um, but the Lord is good. But y'all, when I opened that, that water bowl, and it was like, I know how valuable this is. I know that this costs more than we have in our bank account, literally, at the time. And the fact that 
well, Cal had made it happen for Clay, and Clay had figured out this way to give it to me. I was completely overwhelmed by Clay and by the water bowl. And y'all, the last thing anybody was thinking about was the manner in which I accepted the gift. Because the main thing was the giver of the gift who loved me so much that he wanted to give me this precious thing that would serve as a reminder of how God had been faithful to us. And the beautiful gift itself. The receiving, I mean, the receiving was just taking something that was amazing. We didn't do anything great. And so the focus is always on the giver and the gift. And so Paul comes back around, and in verse 27, he says, then what becomes of our boasting? And you think, what has happened? Where did, what is he talking about? What a weird thing to say. Does that feel like a weird thing to say? Like he's told us this great news. You have been justified by Jesus. It's amazing. You're declared not guilty. The verdict is in and you are not guilty. This is amazing news. The verdict is in on you. The ground is solid underneath you. You are not guilty. And then he, the next thing he says is, then are we going to boast? Oh, he knows us really well. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We got that. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So Paul asks an interesting question here. What becomes of our boasting? And it's like he knows. It's like he knows that when something great happens to us, our knee-jerk reaction is to want to be able to find like some way that I have been awesome, so I have earned this. It's what we always want to do. It's what the bent of our heart is. Um, and we want to take credit. We want to take credit. But Paul is saying, remember, you can't boast. Your justification came through faith. Apart from your performance, and thank goodness, because in case you've forgotten, your performance was a total failure. And so then he asked the question, well, okay, so if I'm not justified by the law because I failed and I'm guilty, and I still, I got justified by Jesus, so I'm not guilty, so maybe the law doesn't matter anymore. Like, do we just forget about the law? Like, it, does it have no use? Because I'm getting Jesus' record. I'm getting Jesus' perfect law-keeping, so now do I just forget about it? And Paul's saying, no, 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 not at all. What happens to you is you have a totally different relationship to the law now because you are justified, because you are not guilty, because the verdict is in on you, and you stand on very solid ground that you cannot mess up your standing. It was something that was given to you, and you can't unget it that we now look at the law with freedom to say, okay, what, what, what is the law? Well, the law is God telling us how to re re relationally respond to him and respond to other people. And so now we can step out in the confidence of, I'm secure in Jesus, 
I don't have to worry about failing because that was very much taken care of. And so I can step out in faith and like attempt to obey the law. And out of gratitude and joy for what's happened to me, I mean, try to love God and love other people. And I make absolutely flop sometimes. And that is okay because I stand on solid ground. And my not guilty verdict has nothing to do with my performance. And so it frees me up to not be so worried, to look around and to love people and to be grateful. It really is good news. And it's news that Paul loves to tell. He told it to the Ephesians in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Listen to the similarities. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, even the faith. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For if we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul's saying, the law now is the way that God shows you. This is, this is the way to walk. This is the way to walk with the grain of who I've made you to be and how the earth is supposed to function. And so it's a great gift. And it's a gift that is for anybody who comes with empty hands and is willing to receive. And it is really, really good news because the verdict is in on us. And so let's pray. We'll send y'all to um, small groups. Heavenly Father, it feels, um, it feels strange to talk about such, such good news and not just throw a party or dance or sing or have a feast or make some toasts, Lord. We have much to rejoice over. Father, I pray that... Um, that you would give us space in our small group times to, um, to work out um, what your, your good news of justifying us means, that you would give some space um, to talk with friends and to process. And Lord, I do pray that we would, in all of it, see your face smiling on us, that we would walk through our days feeling the sparkle of your eye, that you delight in us, that you delight to justify us, that you delight to say that we are your children and we are not guilty. I pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.